Hello, and welcome to To The Point, a podcast for communications professionals that gets to the heart of the biggest questions in communications policy and reputation. I'm Anita Boating, the Policy and Public Affairs Partner at Portland, and today I'm joined by Ed Vasey, now Lord Vasey of Didcut. He's been called the Digital Lord by Forbes magazine and served for the full six years of David Cameron's government as Digital Minister between 2010 and 2016, the longest tenure of any minister in the post. In this episode, we'll be finding out how this government differs to the one he served under when it comes to tech policy, his thoughts on tech regulation, and where the great opportunities for tech growth lie. This is To The Point. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Very good to be here. I don't know why I'm taking part in a rival podcast, but there you go. I think it's because you're not afraid of competition. I think you've probably got a lot more (laughs) listeners. (laughs) Yes, well, why don't you start with the podcast, actually? Um, Why did you create it? And what kind of stories did you want to tell about the world of culture and tech? Well, I'm very lazy, so I haven't uh, maintained the podcast at the pace at which you're maintaining your podcast. But I did uh, had a brief flurry of something called The Vasey View, which is a mm. tech podcast, which I tried to um, – I'm interested in the intersection, obviously, of public policy and tech. So I wanted to interview people who uh, – I was going to say tech first, not necessarily tech first, people who, who had an expertise or knowledge of tech and also we could read across what the implications were for public policy. So people like Tony Blair I've interviewed, um, who I think, by the way, is one of the most interesting and thoughtful speakers on tech. I mean, I know he's got a lot of people working for him and helping him, but at least Mm. he has put together a narrative of what a progressive, from his point of view, given he's on the left, a progressive tech policy could look like for a progressive government. And it's very interesting and fascinating. And no one else comes close to doing that, in fact, because so few politicians do talk in an interesting way about tech. Uh, but I've also interviewed, you know, people about agritech, you know, how's tech going to change agriculture? And I've interviewed the chief digital officer of Estonia about how tech has changed digital government in Estonia. So that's what I'm interested in. And, I've, you know, having left government in 2016, I've always maintained an interest in tech because I find tech obviously very, very creative. Um, mm. It's, uh, you know, we all live on our screens and live on our phones. And what tech does is it says, given the changed circumstances, as it were, given the way we live our lives now, how can we change uh, the way we used to do things? And I think the biggest lesson I've learned, both as a minister and now, is uh, about tech policy or one's attitude to tech, is it's not, tech is not simply just you take an existing system and just put it online. You have to completely rethink the system. It gives you the opportunity to rethink the system. You could rethink government from the ground up in terms of what the opportunities that tech gives you to share data, to share tasks, to do things uh, in a more joined up way. And you can do that in almost any aspect of the public sector from health to education and so on using tech. And this is, for me, the kind of big missing link in public policy at the moment. 
I think that's really, really interesting. And particularly when we talk about UK tech, I mean, it's somewhat of a bright spot in our economy, I would say, especially sort of post 2008. We generally punch above our weight internationally. Um, I can recall the now former Chancellor Rishi Sunak saying that, you know, the UK created more tech unicorns. So, you know, startups valued at over a billion dollars than any other country other than the US and China. And it's just now we look ahead to what the future of what tech might look like. Do you feel that sense of like opportunity for the UK to go further? And, you know, we've had the government talking up the kind of possibly post-Brexit opportunities or, you know, the digital markets unit, pro-competition regime, all of the GDPR reforms, crypto regime. Does it feel like an exciting moment um, for tech in the UK? Uh, no, it doesn't. It feels a bit depressing, actually, for tech in the UK at the moment. I mean, obviously, I'm nostalgic for the Cameron government, and I wouldn't claim credit for this. There were some big figures like Rohan Silver in number mm-hmm. 10, Dan Korski, who was in number 10, now runs public, who really lent into tech, people like Jimmy McLaughlin, even under Theresa May, who understood tech. And government was very, very, very engaged with the tech community and was constantly kind of leaning in to support and help it and to attract them with investment. And Britain is in a unique position. We're sort of, you know, that traditional kind of aircraft carrier for uh, the US in the sense that most US companies regarded the UK as their second market. Easy for them to come here, very similar system, same language, massive ecosystem of skills, a launching pad to get into Europe. Uh, So the perfect place to invest and to open your second office, as it were. Uh, but with a government that was really keen to support tech and keen to lean in both in terms of creating a good investment climate, uh, looking at how regulations could be modernised to adapt, you know, open finance being the most obvious example mm. in the world of fintech. Now it feels pretty disjointed. There's no big leader. There's far too much change at the, at the top, you know, even before the defenestration of Boris, too many ministers coming and going rather than staying put, too many advisors coming and going rather than staying put. And what you need is a, is a government that is relatively stable and committed. And I think if you want to kind of draw a parallel, you only have to look across the channel at Macron and see where he's basically taken our playbook and run with it. And he has moved the dial on tech in France in a very big way. And France has many more obstacles than we have, a different language, far more bureaucratic, tougher employment regulations. Uh, but given post-Brexit, the the kind of situation the UK finds itself in, we should be leaning into this. Now, I put forward a pretty pessimistic view there. Of course, there are some great beacons of hope. You know, we still have that skills ecosystem. We still have our language. We still have a sophisticated investment climate. And we also have big companies like DeepMind, which have you know sit as a sort of anchor tenant of the AI ecosystem. But you look at crypto, and I work with some crypto companies, the Financial Conduct Authority is not leaning into crypto regulation uh, when it could be. Um, And there are all sorts of other areas where the government needs to kind of lean in and create a climate where companies feel that they're engaging with government, government is listening to what the issues are, government wants to solve their problems and support them. And we're in danger of losing that unless we get our act together. It's really interesting that you talk about Macron and cryptocurrency, because that is a classic example of what you're talking about, right? Where Macron seems to have issued some, you know, vocal noises about crypto, which are almost as important as having a really robust and creative um, regulatory system. Um, 
And also, I think that this interesting dichotomy that certainly I see at, at Portland between the sort of political ambition, which can be huge, but fairly general. And as you say, does it have the consistent focus and the regulators who can be a lot more cautious about some of these emerging markets and, and technologies. Do you think that's a, a fair way of, of summarising the dynamic within the policymaking ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, regulators, on uh, are of course, are right to be cautious and their reputation is really important. So slapdash or rushed regulation is can be a mistake. And we're lucky in the UK. We have Ofcom as a media regulator now doing internet regulation. We have the FCA, which has a great standing. The Information Commissioner's Office uh, are all pretty um, impressive regulators with global reputations. So they're quite right to be cautious and not rush into slapdash regulation. Now, Macron and the French regulator have backed crypto. Maybe it will come and bite them uh, further down the line. But it was quite clear that Macron wanted to move fast to attract the kind of crypto investment that is coming. And Spain has just regulated crypto as well. So um, these guys are leaning in, and that is important. So there, there is a balance to be struck. Some people sometimes say with regulators, it's good to have second mover advantage. Let somebody else start the process, see how it works, and then come in afterwards with an improved system. Uh, and it's certainly my knowledge when I talked to Treasury ministers that they felt that France had been a bit precipitate and think that France will get it wrong. We'll wait and see. Maybe they will be proved right. But the fact is that the potential investment that would come from crypto companies is now going to be based mainly in places like France rather than here. And I think that is a mistake. And also, I think, given that people are going to buy Bitcoin and so on, if your duty is to protect the consumer, quite rightly, then you should be working night and day to put in place a regulatory system that does protect the consumer with all the traditional bells and whistles of know your customer and all of that. Uh, and at the moment, it's an unregulated space and that's unhelpful. Yeah. And and what was your experience of dealing with regulators in government? Do you feel like they talk to business enough? Um, and what do you think businesses and people get right and wrong about um, how regulators think and work? That's a really good question. So, you know, the FCA has a great reputation. It has this thing called a sandbox, which was meant to be a place where startups could come and talk to the regulator about what they were doing. And you could trial, just as you were trialing the tech, you could trial regulations about what might work to ensure that your product was safe for consumers, but also recognized uh, the difficulties of being a tech business and kind of upending the business model. But, you know, I'm involved in a debate about updating financial advice regulations and the point being that you have so many more data points about customers you can actually supply them with quite sophisticated information about what their investment opportunities are but of course the regulations are now are still based on a sort of paper-based system where you would sit down face to face with a customer and give them financial advice when you have such comprehensive information about them thanks to tech that that has to be updated but the interesting thing from your question that I take is, yeah, how does a regulator react with business? And it, and it is very important, I think, to uh, take a step back and think about how regulators work, because I saw this a lot with Ofcom. So first of all, it's always important, just like with a government department, to look at who's at the top, because one forgets, one thinks of a regulator as this kind of faceless bureaucracy, like the sort of Delphic oracle that you put in a submission and out comes the answer. They're run by people, and each person stamps their personality on that regulator. Now, without wishing to talk out of turn, because they're both good friends of mine, Ed Richards at Ofcom 
wasn't, I think, the greatest fan of Sky. <laughs> so, you know, Sky had a big old battle with Ofcom about wholesale regulation of its sporting rights. You know, Sky quite rightly wanted to hold on to them and not be forced to uh, hand them over at regulated prices to their competitors. Um, and they had a big, big legal battle. And I think Sharon White, who came in afterwards, had a bit of a thing with BT and Openreach. I'm sure they both dispute this furiously. So BT and Openreach got it in the neck. And my view, again, this will sound like a criticism, is I think a regulator needs to do both things. Clearly, a regulator is a legal, uh, sits within a legal framework, has to make legal decisions which are unimpeachable and cannot be overturned in court. But there is also an aspect of the regulator, which I think we've lost a bit, of being a deal maker, if I can put it that way, which is sitting people down and just saying, this is a problem. We have to solve this problem. You're causing me a headache and we need to sort it out. And you need to do X, Y, and Z. I'm not going to take you to court, et cetera, et cetera. As an example, when I first became a minister, you know, wet behind the ears, little boy in shorts, uh, we were facing... Litigation. Hard to imagine, Ed. <laughs> we were facing litigation over uh, the 4G auction, so auctioning yeah. the spectrum. All four mobile operators were at each other's throats because it paid for them, frankly, to sue the government in court to delay the auction because it, even if it caused them problems, it caused their rivals bigger problems. Mm. And I remember the official saying, you've got to take the statutory instrument off the table uh, because we're going to get sued if we go ahead with the auction. And I said, absolutely not. And we just had conversations with the telcos, and I made it absolutely clear that we were going ahead with this auction, and if they sued me, I was going to make sure that I shouted from the rooftops at every opportunity uh, that the mobile operators were holding back an incredibly important technology for consumers for their own selfish commercial interests. And I basically faced them down. And obviously, I'm telling that story because it makes me look really good. It does. But I'm also telling the story because you've got to have a dialogue with business. Funny enough, when I went for the job of Ofcom chairman, which is a whole other story, mm. in the interview, I was asked, you know, what would a Vasey Ofcom do differently? I'd say I would be a partner to business as well as a regulator. I would work with business and understand that they're delivering something that is vital for the UK economy. And it's You've got to understand they have to make a profit, they have shareholders, they have investors, uh, and you've got to work with them rather than just constantly saying, see you in court. I think it's one thing that's really interesting um, about your answer, and there's several elements there, but I want to pick up on one, which is that you did mention some really big players in the space. And I think the government seems to be looking at competition and asking some really interesting questions about um, what a good thriving ecosystem is, particularly with so many big companies that have such integrated verticals where, um, you know, you've got... Apple in possibly moving into BNPL or firmly moving into buy now, pay later, which I think is an interesting um, dynamic. You've got really interesting um, tensions between yeah, the banks um, and the existing tech platforms. Um, do you think that the government is has the right way of thinking when it talks about wanting to enhance and create a more competitive regime? Do you feel like the government and the regulators have the expertise to make that happen? Um, and do you think the fact that the, the Digital Markets Unit, which is supposed to kind of have a lot of teeth to kind of intervene and create really competitive markets, possibly being delayed, is a problem? So 
you know, I think the competition regulator often gets in the way. Um, famously, if you talk to anyone in the world of television, they refer to something called Project Kangaroo, which was way back in the day, sort of 2005, when the public service broadcasters wanted to get together to create effectively a Netflix before Netflix was a thing. And that was kiboshed on competition rules. Uh, and that is a good example of where I think the regulator gets it massively wrong because they look through the a very narrow lens at the television landscape instead of thinking actually everyone is now going towards games, they're going towards streaming, they're you know on Facebook or whatever, there's much, much bigger landscape in which, frankly, the minnows of British PSBs operate in, and we should allow them to cooperate to create something bigger than themselves. And the same thing has happened with things like newspaper mergers. And uh, I was very much in favour, again, back in the day of the 023 merger in mobile, taking the mobiles down from four to three. And the regulator took a different view, which was a huge mistake, because, again, the margins in mobile are not huge. Um, so I think, and I, I'm very surprised to see the Competition and Markets Authority intervening in lots of cases where it's hard to see why the UK has uh, jurisprudence on some of these global mergers. But having said that, I am in favour of the Digital Markets Unit because, in in effect, to a certain extent, that addresses some of my issues, which is that um, I think that tech is different. Mm. You need to regulate tech in a big way, as you know, the famous difficulty with regulating tech mergers is that the, there's very little consumer detriment because a lot of those services are free because yeah. it's they're paid through via advertising and I think one has to be more watchful on different factors the stifling of innovation and so on and so forth so I think the digital markets unit is a good thing and I also think what we're doing in regulation in the UK which is highly innovative is the snappily named digital regulation cooperation forum yeah which not only does exactly what I love, which was the sort of theme of my ministerial approach, which is you get the different silos in the same room so they can actually talk to each other and exchange information and cooperate and work together. But also they're, funny enough, making joint hiring decisions because if you're going to hire somebody who's a kind of proper tech policy expert who knows how these things work under the bonnet, the kind of salaries they could be offered by the tech companies are way higher than any single regulator could probably afford. So there's a huge opportunity there for joint hiring. So I think that those are two really actually good innovations. And again, but you know, it's a theme of the government that we're just saying goodbye to, that there are lots of good ideas, but very little practical implementation. So whoever becomes the next prime minister, I know we're not going to talk about the leadership election, but practical implementation of policy is so boring but so important to make sure that these things happen I could not agree more and I think you know you, you talk about that silo thing I always liken it with clients to like almost like the volume is turned down low so if you're talking about AI technology one person's talking about it in Bayes one person's talking about it in DCMS regulators are talking about it but they're not even necessarily talking about it loudly enough for it all to be one conversation um, and, and I think your point around the boring nuts and bolts of how you take something from language to reality is, is something mm. that any future prime minister or architect of Whitehall needs to fully understand. And I think your point around like the Rohan Silvers who set up Tech Nation or Dan Korski or even George Osborne who set up Innovation Finance, you sort of got a sense that, that tech was so high up on the agenda that that did help with that coherence agenda. Yeah, now, totally right. 
Now we have to talk about the online safety bill. <laughs> this is the thing that everyone talks about. I mean, does it have the right objective and can it deliver on that objective? Yes, it has the right objective. So it's, it's really fascinating to see what on one level is sort of quite a technical piece of legislation and then see it through the prism of MPs and politicians who don't normally get involved in tech debates. So mm. just going kind of a few steps backwards, you know, I started down this road years ago. Obviously, when I first became minister, IP theft was a big thing. You know, you go on Google and get pirate yeah. copies of uh, Adele, whatever. That was the theme. <laughs> and, um, uh, but it quickly moved on to things like adult content and child sexual abuse. And David Cameron faced down Google, on, for example, on child sexual abuse images, where he told Google he was going to legislate unless they came up with a block on search terms. And they ended up, they started saying it was all too difficult. And they ended up with, I think, 150,000 search terms, which if you type them into Google, you will get a holding page saying, you know, you are searching for illegal images, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's a lot of sophisticated work that's gone on in civic society about this kind of stuff. But the idea that you wouldn't regulate these platforms in some way, I think, is completely ludicrous. I'm not saying they're broadcasters, and I'm not saying they're publishers and newspapers. They are different, but they do need regulation because you need some way of civic society represented by government of having pushback on the kind of stuff that appears on these platforms. And I think the approach of the online safety bill is the right approach, which is effectively to give obviously a well-established regulator like Ofcom the power to regulate and to do it basically based on terms and conditions. It's not like a broadcast. You're not going to see something on Facebook, complain to Ofcom, have an inquiry, find Facebook. We're going to have terms and conditions which Facebook and Ofcom agree, and I know Facebook's now called Meta, but it's just easy to refer to Facebook. Facebook and Ofcom agree terms and conditions. Ofcom can audit those terms and conditions in terms of how they've complied with them, and if they feel they haven't complied with them, they can sue them. Now, obviously, it is not a magic bullet, and as I always say, this is just the end of the beginning. This is just the beginning of internet regulation. It's got a parallel process in Europe through the Digital Services Act, and it is the beginning. It's the beginning of a process. So people should not get overexcited about this. This is not neither going to be the death of the internet, nor is it going to solve all the problems that you see on platforms, but it is at least the start of a process, which you know is going to evolve, and in 20 or 30 years' time, it's going to look very, very different. Uh, having said that, the interesting thing on which I'm genuinely open-minded and haven't made up my mind is, is how it's been interpreted in the political sphere, which is an attack on free speech. And that is fascinating because the legal but harmful issue is understandable. It's basically saying if you pour uh, a pile of racist abuse on someone, weirdly, that may not be technically illegal, what you're saying, but it is obviously extremely harmful, especially if it's thousands of people doing it. So you know what they're trying to address and they're trying to say to the platform, you've got to have in place a mechanism of when this happens or self-harm sites where you, you, know, you might be advising people how to self-harm and that may technically not be illegal. But clearly, a proliferation of those sites which are easy to access for teenagers is highly damaging. So I can see what the government and Ofcom would like to achieve. But I also accept the argument that says, well, if it's that harmful, it should be illegal content and it makes it easier. So it is a really difficult area to police. But I don't believe I don't accept the kind of premise of the right of the Tory party that this is somehow going to stop people saying, oh, you know, I really like Donald Trump um, and it's going to stifle free speech. I don't think it's going to work like that. So I'm open minded, but I can see that 
and I've said this for months now, this is the battleground of the bill. It's the free speech bill, and it's going to be ratcheted up during the Tory leadership race as well, weirdly. But as I say, I, I haven't reached a firm conclusion on what to do about it and how I would approach it when it comes to the House of Lords, but that is the battleground. Yeah, and, and it's coming to the Lords pretty soon. It seems to have made its way fairly rapidly through um, the Commons. And I recall you saying that you were concerned that kind of lots of hobby horses would be hung on the legislation, which doesn't, it seems to have resisted quite a fair bit of amendments um, thus far. But I think you're right that the battle for what this ends up being is as yet unclear. Um, so, I mean, you, you started by saying you were very pessimistic about um, the tech landscape. I feel like you've concluded by saying there are points of real hope and, and sophisticated thinking and that there are elements of certainly, if not necessarily from the political angle, but from the policymaking and regulatory um, perspective that's more thoughtful and future looking. Um, is there anything that you think is a sort of great hope of tech that we don't talk about often enough? Well, thank you, Anita, for this therapy session. You're quite right. <laughs> Having started with doom and gloom, I think we're, we've got great regulators and we're pushing ahead with regulatory reform. We've got a smart data bill, which should be potentially extremely helpful in how we use data. And we have got, I think, a sensible approach to platform regulation, uh, which is going to be in place. So I think that's a good thing. I mean, the great hope for me in tech is public sector stuff. So mm. Matt Hancock set up NHSX to look at how tech can transform healthcare. And I think, again, it, it's just not sexy in terms of electoral politics and because journalists don't particularly want to write about it. But if we had a government that said we're going to be a tech first government that is going to say, how do we do healthcare differently given the huge technology opportunities that are now available? How do we do education differently, which has barely changed since the Victorian age, given the tech that is available? Uh, how do we do government differently? I mean, I mean, I can't even get on the government gateway to pay my taxes. I mean, it's just pathetic. How do we do it differently so that you and I have the seamless experience when we interact mm. with government that we do when we interact with Amazon uh, or Google? And that, to me, is a massive opportunity of reducing costs. I mean, it's the win-win. It's the holy grail for politicians of reducing costs and delivering better service. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Yeah. And I, and I mean, Francis Moore did some of that work. Um, oh, like it was Bracken, amazing. amazing. You know, digital service. And, but there is a lot more from my time in cabinet office that, that could be done. And it is, yeah, totally. it's always, and we've all sort of roll their eyes and say government IT services. There are reasons why it can be more difficult, but nevertheless, I think you're right about the opportunity, um, particularly if we start to use data sensibly to really understand the impact of some of what we are regulating and, and legislating about. Yeah, that could be really, really exciting. Thank you for ending this on a, on a, on a positive note. It's uh, you who ended it on a positive note. <laughs> we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Anita. Thank you for listening to this episode of To The Point with Portland. Should you like to know more about what we discussed today, do get in touch with us via our website, portland-communications.com, or you can find me on Twitter at Anita B. Boating and our guest at Ed Vasey.